Hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have a very cool guest on the show who's talking about one of my favorite topics. We have Kim Ellis Hayes, who is a space industry professional, which she's going to dig into in a bit. At this, she's done a bit of law. She's done a bit of science. She's all sorts of things. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you so much, Amelia, for inviting me onto the show and for giving me the opportunity to share my experience and knowledge and enthusiasm with all of your listeners. We're all looking forward to it, hopefully starting with an easy question, but I'm doubting that these days. What is your job? Okay, so I am a senior lecturer at Swinburne University of Technology and I'm the Space Technology Program Manager for Undergraduate Education. I'm also the CEO of a consulting, an Australian consulting company, International Earth and Space Technology, and I sit on a whole range of different boards and associations leading, I guess, industry thought development in law and space technology across a range of different industry ecosystems. So across the Australian space industry ecosystem, the US, and a little bit in Europe, but not as much as Australia and the US. That's a lot of different things. Hats, yeah, I know. But recently I added another hat to that and I'm training for suborbital spaceflight here in the US. And my training has been postponed during the pandemic and I'll get to go and do that in Florida at the end of January where I'll learn, I'll get to go on a parabolic flight, I'll get to go on a fast jet and I'll get to learn how to use a spacesuit. And I can't wait till that's done because it's just, I'm so excited to actually put all of my experience together and into practice to do something practical. After all those years of talking about space, you're actually going to get to like have a sample of it. (laughs) Well, almost. It'll be just the training. We don't get to go to space, but hopefully it sets me up for that success in the future of being able to go on a mission at some point in the future, whatever that looks like. And I tell you, My whole career has been just such an exciting journey so far since I changed from working in as a research scientist for BHP to changing careers in effect to becoming a space industry professional in 2008. I kind of made the change and it's been such an adventure and I've got to do so many different things that I never thought I'd ever get to do. So I'm happy to talk about that journey a little bit more and I'm sure you're going to want me to unpack that. So yeah, whatever questions you have, fire away. (laughs) We'll go into that in a little bit. I am kind of curious about, do you want to speak a bit about some of the, the roles that you're doing at the moment? Like what are you actually doing as a CEO? So within my company, my role as CEO is to identify opportunities. So opportunities for growth for my company, so consulting opportunities, and looking at establishing my company as, I guess, as a thought leader in my industry. And so it's a lot of speaking at different conferences and for different groups, talking about careers in STEM and talking about education and training and research. And so it kind of, I guess, 
I'm directing the ship, I guess, directing the ship and making sure that the staff that I have on board with my vision and working towards the end goal of creating more opportunities for me to actually share leadership thoughts and share my educational experience and my consulting and research experience with firms and governments all over the world. It sounds really interesting and quite challenging, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) I imagine where you're at now, it might have taken a little while to get it going, that sort of thing. What are some of the things, so for the listeners who are listening and aren't really aware of the space industry, like are you able to sort of give us a real brief elevator pitch to what the space industry actually entails? Oh, absolutely, because that's obviously my other job as the senior lecturer and, you know, space technology program leader at Swinburne. It was my job to set up that program. I set it up from the beginning, set out the vision, engage the stakeholders that needed to be engaged, look at the market and see what was required in Australia and really move forward to make that a reality within the university and set it up within the higher education accreditation system. And so we actually teach about what does the space industry look like, who are all the different players and and how does it operate. And so We look at everything from what parts of the government look after space activities in Australia, what professional associations are involved, and what other companies and organisations are part of that space industry ecosystem. And so all of the space activities and operations that occur in Australia are supported by a legal framework. And so that legal framework, there's a legal framework for Australia, but there's also an international legal framework that all nations who are signatory to a treaty called the Outer Space Treaty, they sign up to agree to abide by a certain set of rules for peaceful operations in space, making sure you don't uh, interfere with with other actors. So the recent Russian anti-satellite tests that occurred that created a really large field of debris in orbit and caused the astronauts on board the International Space Station to take cover inside the escape module. It's not really part of what's considered to be responsible behaviour under the Outer Space Treaty. And Russia is a signatory to that treaty. So it'll be interesting to see what political kind of ramifications that has, you know, down the track. But they're not the first country to do that type of anti-satellite test. Both China and the US have also conducted those sorts of tests too. So it's a really interesting ecosystem where we all have to work together to facilitate peaceful and safe operations in space. So how was that for a nice short <laughs> overview? <laughs> that was beautiful. One of the other things that people may not have thought about is just the legalities of going to space or like are you allowed to just launch a rocket in your backyard kind of thing? <laughs> like you sort of look at it and you think like, oh, it's the Wild West. Like it's just space. You can just chuck stuff up there. Please tell me you can't. <laughs> well, I was going to say the reality is actually really far from that. So a lot of people do believe that it's the Wild West, but in actual fact, those legal frameworks that I was talking about, an international legal framework, which is made up of the five treaties, which make up the Outer Space Treaty, which 
countries sign up to and the majority of nations have signed up to that treaty and they're really general kind of rules about like, you know, don't trash outer space, you know, you've got to operate peacefully, you can't put any nuclear weapons in space, you know, you can't claim land in space so you can't put a flag on the moon and say this is now property of Australia, we're not going to let anyone on here, you can't do that. And so there's the overarching rules, but then there's also domestic rules. Every nation has its own rules on how space operations are conducted. And so Australia has the Space Launches and Returns Act, and it outlines all of the obligations that you have if you're either setting up a launch centre or if you're launching a rocket or if you're launching an experiment. Uh, like we do at Swinburne, we launch a student experiment to the space station every year. And so there are rules about what you can and can't do and what kinds of, I guess, licenses or permits you need to do that. That is a relief. No backyard rockets for everybody. <laughs> well, you can do it, but there are some really, really, really big fines. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think you'd find yourself, the police knocking on the door may not be your usual, like, person in blue. Kind of. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's interesting, though, because the regulation in each country is the way that every nation implements their obligations under the Outer Space Treaties. And so in the Outer Space Treaty, there's one provision that says that every nation has an obligation to continuously supervise and authorise space activities. And what that translates to is uh, licensing for space activities. And so Australia, under their national legislation, they have a permit program for authorising launches both inside Australia and in other countries because, of course, up until now we haven't had a lot of scope for launching from Australia. So, for example, if you need to launch an experiment from the United States, you might have to obtain a, something called an overseas payload permit, which you know, sets out all of the information about the launch to give the Australian government the information it needs to make sure that it's a safe launch and that there's no risk of there being some kind of collision or accident that ultimately the Australian government underwrites liability in excess of a certain amount for a launch or an activity. Yeah, right. So they want to know you've done your due diligence. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing too is that because there's such a problem with space debris in space, so there's a lot of, you know, trash from launches and, you know, anti-satellite tests and things like that, all the nations got together and developed a plan to reduce debris on orbit. And so the Australian government also requires companies to submit a space debris mitigation plan, which is all about how you're going to minimise how much debris is created from your launch or your activity in space. And so they're, you know, implementing their obligation to be sustainable in space, I guess. Which is good. We're obviously all about not just chucking rubbish everywhere. <laughs> what do you see as like the biggest legal challenges when it comes to working in space? Like are there problems that we kind of haven't nutted out yet? I think as the world becomes more globalised and companies actually become more multinational. I think that some of the issues will be working out who's liable for 
a particular space activity. And so it becomes more complex to insure because, of course, you can insure launches and space activities. So being able to insure activities and to be able to work out who is, in fact, liable if something goes wrong, I think is one of the biggest challenges moving forwards. In terms of regulation, I know reducing space debris on orbit is it really does come down to regulation in the future because it will only increase if regulation allows it to increase. And so whilst it's an indirect challenge, I think that regulating to make sure that it's all activities are sustainable is going to be one of the biggest challenges. Okay. So, I mean, it's interesting, it's challenging, but it also sounds like there's a lot of opportunities into the future, which quite like. Absolutely. And the Australian Space Agency has a goal to triple the size of the Australian space industry by 2030. And so there are a lot of grant and support programs for people who are either starting up a new space business or who have an existing space or space-related business to actually participate in the global supply chain. So to help remove the barriers for an Australian company to actually you know, supply to perhaps NASA or some of those big contractors in the US or in Europe or other places. And so it's a really exciting time, I think, right now for Australia, because there is that government support where there wasn't previously. Yeah. And one of the things that I quite like about it is Australia has actually been involved in space since way back, like when yes. the Brits first came here. And so it kind of, to me, it feels a bit like we're going back to our roots a little bit as well. So yeah, I agree. It's good. And now I think that we have, you know, Australia has strengths across a lot of different industries. And so bringing all of that industry knowledge and expertise together to help support growth in the space industry, it's kind of like the perfect storm. Everything's come together at the right time to try and push things forward. So it's really cool. I'm so excited to be a part of it. I really been looking at launches and things since before I told anybody I loved space. I spent so, so much time and I I saw my first launch in the US when I was 21. I happened to be in the US when they were launching a shuttle and I've just been hooked ever since. And I, it's all I could think about. How can I get back to that? But I found a way. (laughs) It takes time, but yeah, for listeners, if you haven't seen a rocket launch, which let's be real, probably most of you haven't, you never know. It is one of the great thrills. You're sort of on the edge of like, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? And then when it works and it's just like, it's just so big. It's like just incredible. And I saw, I happen to be in the U.S., In 2012, I was selected to uh, be on the academic team delivering the International Space University Space Studies Program in Florida, and we were working with Florida Institute of Technology and the NASA Kennedy Space Center. And I believe it was the first SpaceX Dragon launch, and it was at nighttime. And I flew into the States, and someone from the team came and picked me up from the airport and we went straight out to Kennedy to the launch site to, and we were just across the water from where they were launching the spacecraft. And the the feeling of that, so the thing about watching a, a launch 
being actually there is that the engine is so powerful that when the rocket actually takes off, there's this sound that the rocket makes and you can feel it in your chest like it's not and you can feel it in the ground and it's almost like everything the air is alive around you with like the sound the sight because it was a nighttime launch it just the sky was dark and this thing lit up the whole sky it was amazing and so we were all on the edge and I was exhausted because I had just flown in from Australia (laughs) and you know that's a really long flight (laughs) so so yeah it's just incredible and I've seen a whole bunch now like I'm probably up to about half a dozen launches that I've seen now and I've loved every single one of them. Is there any chance that launches of that magnitude will be coming to Australia? Well okay there's a couple of parts to that question so there's there are a few companies that are establishing launch centres in Australia and one of the ones that I've had a lot to do with is Equatorial Launch Australia in the Northern Territory. And they actually will be launching NASA research rockets from next year. Now, that's a much smaller rocket than the rockets that you see, like the Dragon. It's still cool. <laughs> it's still very, very cool though. But here's the thing, those types of centres and there's Southern Launch in South Australia and I believe Gilmore Space has their establishing a launch site in Queensland. And so once you establish a centre that can launch smaller rockets, there's absolutely no reason that you can't ramp up operations and launch larger rockets. And I think that in the future with space activities continuing to increase in their frequency and the number of launches that are required. So SpaceX launches a lot of rockets from the US. They're part of the NASA commercial crew program and cargo return program. And so they're oversubscribed incredibly and there's absolutely no reason why the market can't accommodate some Australian companies actually ramping up operations in Australia to be able to launch those larger style rockets from Australia. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but it will happen. <laughs> we may be old and grey and like wheeled in, but we're going to see those launches on Australian soil. Love it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Hopefully everyone's hopefully now quite excited about the space industry in Australia. It's cool. I hope so. What does an average day at work look like for you? So my days vary a little bit. It depends on whether I'm teaching or whether I'm, you know, working on a new unit or collaborating with industry. And so there are a few things that I need to do in my job to make setting up a program like I've done successful. And so that is that you need to have good industry partners who are willing to contribute their ideas and thoughts and and a little bit of time. And so you have to spend time engaging with those industry partners. And that might be attending a webinar that they might be running on something that they're doing, or it might be that you have a meeting with them to talk about a new unit or a new subject that you're wanting to introduce. It might be recording a little 10-minute video from that industry partner that you insert into the program so that students can actually share their information and expertise too. So I might be doing that. I might also be actually teaching, which means 
you know, giving a lecture or a tutorial with students and helping guide them through the material because I teach the two introductory units that we have, which is space policy law and the new space economy. It's a long name for a subject, but it teaches the students about all that regulatory stuff I was talking about and also what kinds of defence and national security applications there are for different space assets. So it's a really important unit for students to understand, okay, space is more than just satellites for communication. We actually have satellites that are used for national reconnaissance and for positioning for warfighters, you know, who are out in the field, perhaps fighting in Afghanistan, well, not Afghanistan anymore, but anywhere where we have people. And then the other unit is space applications, which gives an overview of the space ecosystem in Australia and overseas. And we talk about government organisations, everything you want to know about all of that. And so I might be doing a lecture, a tutorial or marking some stuff. Sometimes I'm invited to speak at leadership conferences and things like that. So I might be talking about my career. I might be talking about a specific uh, facet of regulatory stuff, or I might be just giving a general talk about space. I guess the other part of it is, is writing perhaps a research paper about something that I'm interested in. So recently, like right now, I'm writing a paper on human spaceflight regulations in the US because I sat on a panel for the American Bar Association Forum of Air and Space Law with lawyers from NASA. I had the spaceports director from the FAA and I had a lawyer from Blue Origin and we were talking about human spaceflight regulations. So I'm doing a paper to follow up on that. And so that's kind of one very academic, you know, (laughs) kind of nerdy hat. But then I might be at a conference where I might be talking with uh, different industry people and attending events in all different parts of the world. So I've, you know, I've worked and attended conferences in Ireland, the Netherlands, France, Canada, you know, everywhere. It's just amazing how many places I've been able to go to. And then the other side of the spectrum where in January I'll be climbing into a spacesuit and learning how to manage my body when we're free falling in a parabolic aircraft. I often am asked to contribute to perhaps a research model for a a little widget that we might want to send to space. And You know, there's a whole range of different cool activities which no two days are really alike and it's interesting doing most of my work from home during the pandemic has been, I mean, it's been a nice break but I'm ready to go back and see people at conferences and things like that. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. It's nice having meetings over Zoom and talking to people and being able to wear comfortable pants and all that sort of stuff, but you don't get that same level of energy as you do when you're in a room full of people having cool ideas. Like Exactly. And I love, you know, giving a talk in front of a whole bunch of people. So the Kennedy Space Centre invited me to come and speak. They have a space congress. It's actually called the Space Ports Congress now. And I came to speak about Australian space programs back when we didn't have a whole lot of stuff going on. 
And it was so fun to get up in front of a room full of astronauts and space professionals from the US down in Florida and actually, you know, talk about topics that we all have in common. And it's really enjoyable, like you say, feeling that energy in a room. And there's so much you can accomplish just with a a conversation with someone about what they do. I mean, that sounds exciting. It also sounds fairly terrifying. Well, here's the thing. Every single time, I must have done hundreds of interview, probably more than than that, hundreds of interviews, talks, all kinds of things, you know, with people I don't know, in front of large groups, just, and yeah, it, it is terrifying. But at the end of the day, I've always told myself that if you want to progress in your career, you can't sit and be comfortable. You need to be able to say this talk or this activity that I'm doing here, it makes me feel uncomfortable. But if I'm not willing to put myself through feeling uncomfortable, then I'm not going to grow and learn. And so it's literally my brain forcing me to say, you don't want to do it. Okay. Fair enough. Nobody wants to do it. But if you don't do it, you won't get to where you're going. So you can, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But don't come crying to me when you don't get to go where you want to go. <laughs> and that is obviously really good advice for any industry and it, not just about your professional life. Yeah. How have you got to this spot where you are now? Like what was your path from say, high school to here? So I think the interesting thing about STEM careers and technical, you know, STEM technical type careers is that there's no one path that fits everybody and everybody's STEM path is unique. So you can give some generalities about the pathway that you've taken and I'll do that in a minute, but everybody's career will be unique because there are so many different choices and pathways that you can go on in in this type of career. And that's why I love it so much because it really is, you know, if you become a medical doctor, for example, there's a whole bunch of different areas that you can practice in, but it's a fairly, you know, standard kind of a pathway, same as accountant or, you know, there's a whole range of occupations that are like that. So, go back to high school I did all the proper things that people said you should do if you wanted to get a high score in the HSC and be able to get into a science degree and I actually wanted to do veterinary science I wanted to be a vet because I'd been around animals and I lived in the country and I liked science and I really didn't know that what I'm doing now actually even existed back then so to me I thought STEM career meant being a teacher or working in a lab. And so I really, you know, I was like, okay. So I did all the, you know, physics, chemistry. I did agriculture, funnily enough, and English. I did high-level maths. And my score was okay, but it wasn't enough to get into vet science. So I missed out on vet science and I decided that, I was enrolled in the rural science course at University of New England and I got a job with BHP at the steelworks working in the lab. 
And I thought, mm, maybe that's what I'll do. And they were going to send me to university to do science. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. I'll, I'll go for a job because then I've got, a, I've got pay rather than trying to support myself. So you attended university part-time and you went to work kind of four days a week. You have one day for uni. So I did that and I worked in a laboratory at the steelworks and we did analysis of steel, we did analysis of waters, coal, like raw materials. It was a really interesting job. It was kind of like, you know, you made sure that everything kept ticking around in the steelworks and I really enjoyed that but I I kept looking at space going, I'd really like to do that. And it's funny, you know, after going through that for a while I had my kids and took a little bit of time out of the workforce. But then I went back to the research laboratory rather than working on a process chemistry job. So going from being looking after a process to looking at research. So we're looking at mining samples and concentrates and developing new methods of analysis for different mining samples that had a different chemical makeup. And so I did that. But I did that for Rio Tinto for a little while and then I went back to BHP and did that for BHP. And then BHP made all of their technical team redundant at the end of 2008. And I was like, now what? What am I going to do? I really don't know. So I took six months out and I went to the company put us through this careers counselling And so the lady in that careers counselling, I just wasn't excited by any of the jobs I saw. She asked me, she said, what would you do if you could do anything? And I just said, I'd be a rocket scientist. And she actually stopped me and she goes, okay, let's talk about that. I'm like, you must be crazy. There's no rocket science jobs around here. She goes, don't worry about whether there's rocket science jobs or not. Let's talk about why you want to do that. And so, you know, I talked about how I'd always watched launches and read about space and I'd always thought I'd work in that area and I talked about the launch I had seen when I was 21 and anyway long story short she said why don't you pursue that idea that you want to work in space what do you need to do to cross over and I'd already decided that I was going to go to law school to give myself some skills in writing, communication, and to increase my critical thinking skills because there's a very particular set of skills you learn in law school. And so I enrolled in that. And then I'd found this International Space University, which is a university in France. They have a space studies program that runs for three months every year in a different country. And I had heard about it and they had a scholarship program And I applied for it and I got a scholarship. So I got to go to France for three months, do a research project on asteroid mining and live, breathe, talk, walk space for three months. I learned about everything to do with space. So after I came back from that, and the great thing about that program is the networking that you get from that, international networking with space people, astronauts, people doing space jobs that you have never heard of in your life. And all of a sudden you're around all these people and so it became possible to me. 
And from there, I really just I finished my law degree and I spent time getting experience in all of the different facets that were interesting to me. So I found space law fascinating, the regulatory, you know, I had no idea there was a regulatory framework for satellites, for putting experiments up, but I'd always been fascinated. So I did specialized in space law and I got myself a position running chairing the space law department at the space university and so I've been an adjunct faculty member for them for a long time and so gradually I built my expertise in all these different areas and increased my network and I just have over time just built this you know incredible I guess if you want to call it a what do you call it? A career toolkit of, you know, all of the things you need to move from where you are to where you, where you want to be. Just building that and pushing myself forwards, pushing myself to do things that were uncomfortable, like speaking. And what's really interesting is when, going back to when I got the Space University scholarship, it was only a partial scholarship and they actually sent instructions on how to get the rest of the scholarship by doing all these different things. And so that's where I learned to talk on radio, to speak in front of groups, and I raised the rest of the money that I needed from all of those activities that I did across about six months before I went to the program. And, you know, really, I don't even know, like when I look back, at who I was before I went to the Space University or before I changed my job and that careers consultant said to me, why can't you be a rocket scientist? What's stopping you? Don't put barriers up. And, in fact, you know, I think she was really the key turning point. That idea was the turning point to me moving from something which I still loved. I loved my job in the lab. Don't get me wrong, I loved it. But, you know, I never realised, you know, how much more you could enjoy a job. It was, you know, I really didn't understand how much happier I could be in a, in a career where, you know, I get to bring up these new concepts and teach students how to move themselves forwards in their career because that's a big part of our program at Swinburne. We offer the program to pretty much all disciplines at the university can take it, not just STEM people, because we believe that the industry needs people from different disciplines with space knowledge to be able to know, because that's the key thing. If I hadn't been exposed to those people with all those different sorts of jobs, I would never have known they even existed. And so exposing our students to that is so important. That was a beautiful story. And whilst I imagine getting made redundant really sucked, I'm also kind of glad for you that it happened because it meant it opened up an opportunity and, um, yeah, I think it was BHP, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they've, yes, they've made a lot of people redundant over the years, but also they're very good with their careers program and that's awesome. They're amazing. They give so much incredible support to help you to find another job or to retrain or do whatever it is that you're going to do. And I'm so grateful, actually, you know, if I'd never lost my job, I might still be doing that. And whilst I would have been perfectly happy, I would never have gotten to experience all of the amazing stuff that I've been able to experience. I mean, I got, when we went to the 
Kendi Space Centre, the Endeavour Space Shuttle was still in the orbital processing facility. So what they did with the shuttle program is, well, they had this entire building that housed the space shuttle and that's where they got it ready for the next flight. And they actually had the Endeavour Space Shuttle in the processing facility getting it ready to go to the museum in California because they'd shut down the shuttle program just the year the year before or yeah I think it was the year before so as a special treat the leadership team from that program we were taken on a special tour of Kennedy through all these amazing areas and one of them was we got to climb into the space shuttle and sit in the captain's seat and climb all through the mission specialist area and we got to sign the little white thing on the outside of it that's actually in the museum in California right now. So my little signature is right there in the museum and I was so lucky, I was so lucky. So it just, and I'll never forget that day we got to go see Shuttle Atlantis was in a hangar and then we got to see, I think there were some, wreckage from one of the space shuttles that hadn't made it back in one piece that we were able to see and some of the information about investigations into that and just they drove us all around the launch pad so the launch pad that you see the SpaceX launches going from it's really interesting the way they had it set up was that there's like a an area where everyone climbs up into the or used to climb up into the shuttle, we got to go up there and there's like an escape bucket like on um, Men in Black. There's one of the Men in Black movies. They go up on the launch pad and they use the escape bucket, but we got up to go see it. There's actually, it's on a line and if something went wrong, the astronauts could jump into the bucket and let go of the thing and they zoom down to the bottom. But then also underneath the launch pad, there's actually all these tunnels and this safety area where the astronauts could go if something went wrong with the rocket, where they could escape to. And it was just amazing. I've never seen anything like it in my life. It was just such an eye-opener. And I was like, yep, this is, I love this. This is cool. (laughs) That's legit cool. And just on the off chance that, you know, there's a young person listening and they're like, hmm, that sounds awesome. Have you got any advice for them or for a young Kim, any advice? Yeah, I think the most important piece of advice that I could give anybody is that you have to listen to yourself and what you want to do. And, you know, so many times when I said out loud to another human being what I wanted to do, they laughed or they said, don't be stupid. You can't get a job doing that. Or have you lost your marbles or, you know, that's just ridiculous or they made fun of it or whatever. No matter what you do, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. All that matters is what you think. And if you think that's what you'd like to do, just don't listen to anyone. And if someone tells you no, don't give up. Just keep going until you get a yes. Sometimes you think you want to go in one direction and you're knocking on this door and you're getting a no and you stop and think and you try another door and you knock and you get a no, try another door and you get a yes. You can't give up just on the first 
no. You might have to get 100 no's, but you have to be, this is what I want to do, this is where I want to go, and don't listen to anybody that says that you can't do it because you can. You can. And I think also part of your story shows that success in achieving that is through a bit of creativity and pulling different things together. So whilst your original idea was I want to be an astronaut, you then took this other path, have ended up in the industry anyhow, and will sort of be an astronaut. I didn't want to be an astronaut. Like when I said rocket scientist. Oh, rocket scientist, I apologise. Yeah, no, that's all right. I was like I actually didn't set out to be an astronaut. In fact, that's what I didn't want to do because I, I didn't want to be in a squashed up little tin can being shot at the speed of a bullet into or I just went, no, no, that's not for me. But over time I've realised that it's just another application of my love of space and of science and technology. So I'm more excited by the idea of doing science than I am about the physical process of doing that. And so I hope that I get to do it one day. But you know what? If I don't, I'll still be exhilarated by what I do already. So it would be a bonus. <laughs> well, you're going to get to go up in, in parabolic flat and that's close enough for me. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Very awesome. Yeah. Is there any myths or misconceptions about the space industry that you'd like to take this opportunity to do a bit of myth busting? Well, I guess another one of the challenges that I haven't talked about is the challenge of being female in a majority male field. And unfortunately, sometimes I think I've been on the receiving end of unconscious bias or sexism by both men and women, actually. Like, it's sad that it's, well, it comes from everywhere, but I think more women need to move forwards and, you know, say what they want to do and not be put off by being put in a box. Like, I don't know, everywhere I go in the space industry, it's like I'm 20% of the people in the room are women, right? If that. And that's such a low number. And I don't understand if that's the result of, you know, some of this unconscious bias or sexism, or it's the fact that women might feel uncomfortable and therefore don't pursue what they want to do, you know. So I would give people the advice that if you're in an environment where you're, I guess, on the receiving end of that type of behavior, like, A, it's not okay, but you should really think about is there somewhere else where you'd rather be that has a more inclusive and productive environment? You know, don't put yourself through stuff whilst it's wrong for people to treat women differently. It happens. Everyone knows it happens. And you have to put your foot down and kind of say, look, and call it out when it happens. And no matter how uncomfortable that might make you, under the circumstances, sometimes you have to do it because it will continue while women don't speak up. And I understand there is some backlash sometimes when you speak up. And so it's a good learning process to be able to speak up, but also to call out the backlash. It's really important. Don't just speak out, but speak out about when you're spoken out about against. Yep. Yeah. I think that's a really tricky one to be working in. Honestly, 
there's a part of me that's like, wow, 20%, that's so many. And that's really sad. I know. And so I'm, I'm hoping that partly through some of the work that I've done with different student groups and industry groups, you know, we're trying to increase the numbers of women who want to come into this field. And I think it's partially to just knowing about what different careers are there. You can make your own pathway and make your own career. You know, obviously, if there's a specific area where there's absolutely no employment prospects, then you've got to really look hard and go, okay, well, where can I fit this duck and weave? But it's really important that you do what you love and you just, because you'll always be excited at work then. It won't be a, oh my God, I've got to get up and go to work. I don't think I feel like that hardly ever, unless I've been on the road for a few days and just need a rest. (laughs) I'm legit tired. And... Ladies, you are allowed to be excited about rockets, space, satellites, all these things. Like they're not, these are not toys for the boys. No, no, they are not. (laughs) We're allowed to have fun here too. Yeah. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? I can't think of anything right now other than maybe... One of the great things that you can do for yourself to advance your career is to invest in professional level education in whatever it is that whatever area that you need to, you know, in the past I've invested in coaching so that I can move my career forwards in the direction that I want to go. It doesn't even have to be expensive coaching. It can be something which is like just a guided program. And the government has a lot of really great programs that are offered for free, which is somewhere where you can start. And so I would encourage women to go and look at the programs that are offered there. And then to also look at award schemes because when you apply for an award, it's not necessarily a monetary award. It might be that they give training or education funding. And so that's a really great resource to have because you can learn uh, leadership skills, business skills, all kinds of skills that our government offers free of charge to help you to move your career forwards. And I would encourage you to do that, but also investigating coaches who can actually help you level up really fast is also a really great investment. Just working out, one of the biggest benefits of a coach is working out where are you now and where do you want to go? What's important to you? And once you have those things set out, then it's really easy to chart out a course. You know, if you don't know where you're going, how do you know, you know, like you could end up anywhere. So even if it's as simple as you writing down what you want to do and getting there, that's something that I really would encourage people to do. And I know that when I give talks to uh, like leadership talks, there's an activity that I get everyone in the audience to do, which is to take a selfie and then to send themselves a text with future whatever it is that you want to be. So I always type out future astronaut in the example that I put up, but then I get them to send it to themselves because it's like in that moment where you're not really thinking, you just got to do it. And I give them like, right, do it now, five, four, three, two, one, and then send it to yourself. It's really interesting what pops up 
And more often than not, the first thing that pops into your head is like the thing that you really want to do. So it's kind of like a time capsule of what your thoughts are at that time, something real simple that can help move you forwards to what you want. That's an awesome activity. I love it. (laughs) It's real simple. (laughs) And just to think about wrapping up, have you got a virtual high five, a shout out someone or an organization that you think is doing an awesome job and deserves like a bit of kudos? There are so many. There are so many organizations that I could give a shout out to, but I think what I'd like to do is really single out Swinburne University, their alumni association. They have been an incredible support for my training. They are sponsoring the the cost of the training that I'm doing in the US and providing support in that area and just their team Catherine Goldman is an amazing team and then all of my management team like my managers at Swinburne they have all been super supportive in terms of getting me set up and facilitating my engagement in that actual training and so I think that that's a well-deserved shout out for such a great team who's giving you know, really putting their money where their mouth is. Like we're supporting women. Here's how we're supporting women. I love it. So lots of high fives to the team at Swinburne. And that's a wonderful reminder that we are a product, a little bit of our environment, and we are able to achieve awesome things by having awesome people around us who believe in us and will lift us up. So yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kim. This has been absolutely delightful and hopefully everyone is now really excited about space. Well, I'm delighted. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Research this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening, you're a legend. <laughs>